I feel like the air goes out of the room when Zelda leaves, doesn't it? It just seems like, oh, it's boring now. <laughs> that girl is so delightful, I'll tell you what. Uh, on Tuesdays here, a group of homeschoolers uh, gather together, and they, um, they have a full day of class. And uh, it's really fun here on Tuesdays. They're active, they're running around, they're doing stuff, and uh, it just brings life into this place. And uh, they, uh, many of them are not from this church, and so they would like to thank the church for hosting them. And so um, next Sunday, we're going to have a potluck dinner here. And so I just really encourage you to bring, bring some food and just enjoy the fellowship. And then uh, at, after that potluck dinner, they're going to have a, a, a small program that they've been preparing for us uh, of things that they learned in their, in their homeschooling. So that's going to take place next Sunday. And I'd encourage you to, uh, to stay for that. I think that it's going to be a really good time. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we, we just thank you so much that in a world that sometimes for us seems to have gone crazy, um, in a world where things seem upside down, and in a world where lies seem to be projected as the truth, and the truth belittled as falsehood, in a world where people try to do right, and, and yet they're accused of doing wrong in a world where people are clearly wrong and they're presented as role models. We just thank you so much that we know Jesus, Lord and King and Master. And that, Lord Jesus, you are on your throne as we just sang, and you are glorious, and you are the Lord of heaven and earth that all authority has been placed in your hand. And we thank you that you are coming again and that you are going to reign and rule and all of this stuff will be cleaned up and made right and truth will be truth and understood by everyone and justice will be done and lies will be exposed and the demonic will be punished and that good will reign, and that your kingdom, your new heavens and new earth will be good, a good place. Thank you so much. And thank you that we know that you're reigning now, and that you're reigning in our lives, and that you're in control of our lives, and that you are a great and glorious God. Help us this morning. Help us to see you more clearly. As we sang to turn our eyes upon Jesus, help us to do that today, to see you more clearly through your word and how you've been revealed. Speak to us, we pray, through the Holy Spirit. We ask this in your precious name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Uh, both passages that Bill read today, we're actually going to be looking at. And so if you want to keep yourself marked, we're going to look at Matthew. Then we're going to go to Philippians chapter 2 as we seek to understand what's going on in this Matthew passage. But the focus is we're going to continue through our study of the book of Matthew and, uh, and that brings us here then to this Matthew uh, passage, chapter 12. Um, but before we get there, I want to just kind of prepare us for this. And that is this. Um, so much of what we see today is people vying for power. People vying for power and authority. People, people trying to, to impose their will upon other people through power. And, and, and seeing that happen. And so people organize and they rally. 
and they argue and they yell and they protest and they fight uh, because they want the power to make things happen the way they should happen. We see rules being bent and twisted around in, in Congress so that we can have a vote this way and it'll go that way. And we see all of this happening and everybody is concerned for power and that our, our party is in power. And that's not new, by the way. That's not new. In Mark chapter 10, verse 42, Jesus said this, but Jesus called them to himself, and these are his disciples. I'm sorry, I gave you the wrong one. Okay, drop that and listen to me. It must not be Mark 10. Uh, in Mark, Jesus says this, Jesus called them to himself and he said, you know that those who are considered rulers over the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. Jesus said, amongst the Gentiles, amongst the, the, the unbelieving world, people rule and have authority and exercise authority. And that is considered the, the, the top thing, the top thing. But then in the next verse, Jesus says this, yet it shall not be so among you, but whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. And whoever desires to be first, shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Now, when you hear Jesus' words like that, there's something very strange about that. There's something odd. There's something that throws us off kilter. Wait a minute. Here is the one who has all authority in heaven and on earth. Here is the greatest authority figure of all, and he's saying that those among my followers who are going to be first shall be the ones who are the servants of all. Those among my, 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 uh, my people who desire to be first should be the slave of all. And I have come to serve. It it's kind of turns things upside down. It's not what you expect from God. It's not what you expect from somebody who has that kind of authority. Greatness is being a servant. Greatness is not lording it over people and, and telling them what to do and getting your will imposed upon everybody else. Greatness is saying, what do you want me to do? How can I serve you? In Jesus's thinking, in, in God, as he reveals God the Father, in God's thinking, at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue, which is the White House, the janitor, the maid, the waiter, and the gardener, are greater than the president? Yep. A mom who is, now let's not be political here. <laughs> a mom who is changing a diaper or feeding a child sitting in a high chair is greater than a CEO who is at her desk making big decisions. A nurse's aide who is cleaning a bedpan is greater than the chief of surgery, a nursery worker who has sacrificed her worship experience so that others can worship here is greater than the pastor who is preaching from the pulpit. That's what Jesus taught us. The first shall be last, but the last, the slave shall be first. Serving and sacrificing is the epitome of greatness. And so quite frankly, dear friends, we probably fail to see greatness daily around us. We probably fail to see greatness daily. 
And so this, this, is, this is a strange thing. This God is strangely different than what we expected from him. And yet it's glorious. And I think this passage before us today is going to bring this out with great power for us. And I want us to look at this passage today. Now, you remember the context. Jesus is, is having a, a debate and, uh, with, with the Pharisees over, over the Sabbath day. And uh, he goes into the synagogue, and there's a man with a, a terribly withered hand. It's, it's, it's completely handicapped. And Jesus heals that hand. That man is immediately, instantly, without rehab, without surgery, he is instantly healed. And he can, he can use it as powerful as the other hand. It's a powerful, powerful miracle. And then we're told in verse 14, then the Pharisees went out and plotted against him how they might destroy him. Now, here is that vying for power. Here is that we're going to impose our will. We're going to kill this man. We're going to kill this man because we see him as a threat. Now, notice Jesus' response to this threat. It says this, verse 15. But when Jesus knew it, he withdrew from there. He withdrew from there. He retreated. He got away. He went underground. He left. He didn't stay to fight. He didn't stay to confront. He didn't rally. He had the crowds for him. He didn't rally. He didn't organize. He didn't protest. He leaves. He runs away. He retreats. It actually looks cowardly what he's doing. And in fact, much of what Jesus taught to the world today looks cowardly. Turn the other cheek. Turn the other, somebody slaps you, turn the other cheek. Don't hit him back. Love your enemies. Pray for your enemies. If a Roman soldier tells you, can, can, forces you to carry his pack for one mile, carry it two, carry it another one. Feed your enemy. Give him a cup of cold water. When you're being cursed, Respond with blessing? That looks cowardly to this world. But I would present to you that that actually takes much more moral courage than the other way around. But Jesus still, even though he retreats, even though he withdraws from there, even though he, he avoids the conflict, great multitudes still follow him. Look at verse 15. And great multitudes followed him, and he healed them all. They still felt the moral force of this man. They still felt the greatness of it. I love this verse because they were not following the, the, the powers to be. They weren't following the intellectual elites. They weren't following the religious leaders. They weren't following these who were opposed. They were going against their leaders and saying, no, 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 we're with him. We're with him. We're following him. We see something in him that you can't offer. But then look at verse 16. Rather than using this political uh, power that he now has with this multitude of people that are following it, instead of organizing them and, and, and putting out banners and, 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 and publishing websites and, 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 and putting special t-shirts out, uh, uh, and that, notice what he says, verse 16, yet Jesus warned them not to make him known. He doesn't self-promote. He doesn't want his name out there like this. He's, he's odd. 
This doesn't make sense to us in our political world. And this has been his pattern. Look at chapter 8 and verse 4. Chapter 8 and verse 4. He heals a man with leprosy and he says this, See that you tell no one. See that you tell no one. But go your way. Show yourself to the priest. Look at chapter 9 and verse 30. He heals these men who were blind. And he says, and he sternly warned them saying, see that no, no one knows it. Don't tell anybody. This man is not into self-promotion. He's quietly doing God's will. He sees greatness in a widow's might. He, he's, he's working underneath the surface, but he's changing the world quietly. I love in Acts chapter 10 and verse 38, hopefully I gave Amy the right one this time because I obviously screwed up the last time. I must, no, no, keep going to Acts chapter 10. Now I really screwed up. It's, I messed up again. Acts, in Acts chapter 10, Jesus, uh, uh, Peter is speaking to the um, Gentiles, uh, to Cornelius, and he says this, one of my favorite verses about Jesus. He says, I want to tell you how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, who went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. Peter says this. This is how he sums up Jesus' life. He went about doing good. He went about doing good. I thought that is so special. Sometimes Jan will, I'll come home and Jan will say, hey, what have you been up to today? And so I kind of tongue-in-cheek. I said, I'm just been around doing good. Just went around doing good. That's all, that's all I do. And, uh, but but I, I love how Jesus is described there. He's not self-promoting. He's not making a big name for himself. He just went about doing good. And Matthew, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, sees this as a fulfillment of what the Old Testament prophet Isaiah said the Messiah's mission was going to be. You see, so much of what we're going to see coming up in the book of Matthew here is Jesus trying to re-educate people on what the Messiah's mission initially was supposed to be. See, they thought it was supposed to be a mission of military uh, leadership, a mission of taking over, a mission of making Israel great again, a mission of making Jerusalem the center of the world again, a mission of making uh, it, it, all of that a military mission. And that was what it was at all. And Matthew is saying, listen, look, this is what the Old Testament prophets said the Messiah was going to be about, but we're missing it. We're missing it. We don't understand. We see weakness. We see loving your enemy. We see turning the other cheek. We see running away from, from, from uh, people who are threatening you. And, and Matthew's saying, no, wait a minute. This is what the, the Bible said Messiah was going to be. And so then he quotes Isaiah 42. And notice the verse. Notice what it says. It says, verse 18, behold, my servant. Stop right there. Look at what that is saying. God is bringing forth Messiah, and he calls him my servant. Not my king, my great one. He will be a king. He will be a great one. We're going to see that. My servant, whom I have chosen. And then he's described as my beloved, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased, or in whom I delight. And this is a, 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 a phrase that comes right out of the mouth of God in the life of Jesus in many times. At Jesus' baptism, God's voice comes out from heaven and says, my beloved. At the mouth of transfiguration, once again, God's voice comes out of heaven and says, my beloved. 
Jesus is the Father's beloved. His soul delighted in Jesus, his son. He saw in Jesus such one. God is so gracious. God is so good. God, God loves us. God delights in us. God is good to us. God cares about us. He really does. He really does. But when God looks upon me and you, he has to look upon us with grace. He has to overlook, as it were, or see through, or grace overwhelm and, and be all of our sin. But when he looks upon Jesus... He looks upon one who is absolutely, perfectly pure and holy. He looks upon his son who is also God. He looks upon him and his son stirs up the greatest absolute delight of his heart. And so Jesus, the father is saying here, behold, behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom, in whom my soul is pleased. I will put my spirit upon him and he will declare justice to the Gentiles. This one who I'm bringing forth, who will be filled with the Holy Spirit, this one who is coming before it, he is the one who is going to teach us truth, teach us righteousness, teach us justice. He will be the king of righteousness and the king of, of, of all kings, and he will bring forth a righteous kingdom. But then look at verse 19. He will not quarrel, nor cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. He will not quarrel. My Messiah, my servant who comes, is not going to be somebody who's in your face, quarreling with you, fighting. In fact, listen to the definition of this word, this original word in the Greek. It means, for the word quarrel here, it means to contend, to confront, to engage in heated debate that results in discord or needless strife. That sounds like the evening news. <laughs> he will not engage in heated debate that results in discord or needless strife. Jesus is not in your face yelling his political causes. He's not fighting. You're not going to be like that. And notice what it says next. He's not going to cry out. And again, this word means to, to shout out, to move the authorities. To shout out, to get your will done, to protest in that way, to yell out. He's not going to do that. In fact, this is a very interesting word because this word is used only once of actual Jesus. Jesus actually did use this word, this word of authority that goes out and says, this I want done. And you know the, first, the only time this word was ever used with Jesus was Jesus saying at the tomb of Lazarus, Lazarus, come forth. Jesus is protesting death at that point. He's protesting the sadness. He's protesting that, and he's calling out to Lazarus. Lazarus, come forth. But the rest of the time, this word is used against Jesus. Three times it's used in John 19, this crying out. And this is what they said. We want Barabbas. We don't want him. Second time, crucify him. Crucify him. Third time, if you release him, you're not a friend of Caesar. And every single time those, the crowd was shouting that out, Jesus stood there silently. He will not quarrel nor cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the street. To the point that Pilate turns to him and says, why are you being silent? Don't you hear what they're saying? And Jesus would not cry out. Why? He's Jesus Christ. He's the Son of God. 
He has the authority of God. Do you not know that I could call down legions of angels, he said at one point. It's because of the nature. He's showing us the nature of who God is and of who he is. He's actually living out what he said in chapter 11 and verse 28. Notice, um, verse 29. Notice what it says. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Then notice what it says next to see how this gentle and lowliness works itself out. Look at verse 20. A bruised reed he will not break. A bruised reed he will not break. Now, I, before I sold my house, one of the things I delighted in, and Lord willing, I'll do this again sometime. Um, it takes some years to get ready for it, but um, I, had, I had a grape arbor, and I loved working my grapes. I really did. And I loved being out there in March uh, when the grapes needed to be pruned. And when you go to prune grapes, the, the Concord grapes, um, you have to prune the big ones, the big, the big ones away. And you need the small ones, about the size of a pencil. You need the small ones, and you need to have, make sure that those ones are ready to produce this year, and you need a couple that are ready to produce two years from now. And so you, it's, it, it takes a lot of forward planning. But when you're out there, it's a big tangled mess, and you start pruning these big ones away. And if you know grapes at all, you know they send out these little tendrils that grab onto everything. And so you're pulling these big ones out, and you're trying to get them out. But you're doing it very, very carefully because you don't want these little guys that are attached to it to snap, and they will. You'll hear a little creaking and snapping. And I, I had to learn to be very forthright and very, uh, in terms of looking at what's going on, and very tender to pull that out. And if one started to move a little bit, I'd stop and have to cut him free so that he wouldn't break in any way. And what Jesus is saying is being said about Jesus here is that if you have a reed that's, that breaks, that cracks, he doesn't snap it off. He doesn't snap it off. He tenderly, tenderly keeps it together to restore it to health. That's what's being said here. So if you ever had a flower that, that broke down and you and you evented back up and somehow supported it so that it would continue to get vitality through the vine, that's what this is. This is speaking of a, of a great tenderness and a great sensitivity to something that, that isn't even that important. A bruised reed he will not break. Notice the next one, smoking flax. You say, what is smoking flax? Well, flax is a, is, is a plant that is actually made for the fiber, and the fiber is turned into linen. In fact, the Greek word here is actually linen, what we think of linen. And what they used that for was the wick of their candles and, and, and their lamps. And what this is saying here is that you come upon a lamp or a candle, and, and it's just very barely smoldering. There's a little bit of orange down in there. He doesn't snuff that out. He brings that back to life. If you've ever camped and you came back to your campsite and there were a few little coals there, or if you ever tried to, to start a fire and, uh, and you got a few little bit of coals there, you had to just blow on it just enough, just right. If you blow on it too much, you'll blow it out and, and, you, and, and you have to be very careful nurturing it back. Nurturing it back to flame. And that's what this is saying here. Jesus is that kind of person. He's not shouting. He's not, he's not, he's not frantic. He's my servant. And, and he will bring these forth until, now notice what happens. Till he sends forth justice to victory. And this is actually triumphant military language. This gentle and kind person is going to bring forth justice. And notice verse 21. And salvation to the Gentiles. All are going to trust in him. All are going to, to, to see in him life. 
Dear friends, notice what we have here. We have what appears to be a weak, non-self-promoting, non-loud, non-violent person who's going to actually triumph over the entire world. He's going to triumph over the entire world. And this is what's taught in other places of Scripture. Let's look at Philippians 2, because Philippians 2, and I know I turn us here often because I'm truly convinced that this is probably one of the most important things that God has ever revealed to us in a passage of Scripture. In Philippians chapter 2, notice the exact same thing is being said, but this time it's being taught to us in an epistle. Verse 5, let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. We're supposed to have the same mindset, by the way, that Jesus has. Who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. Now many of you know I don't care for that translation as much as this one. Who did not consider equality with God something to grasp after. Recognition. Power. Authority. Now notice what the verse is saying though. Who being in the form of God. Who being God didn't say treat me as God. I'm going to exercise my power. I want this power. I want this recognition. I want this for myself. No, he didn't do that. That's not the mindset. He did not consider equality with God something to grasp after. But notice what it says next. But made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant. And that's doulos. Let's be real. Slave. Taking the form of a slave. So look at verse 6. He's in the form of God. And what does he do? He takes the form of a slave and comes in the likeness of men. He's in the form of God, and he comes down to become a mere mortal, a mere human in that sense, in taking on humanity. And then look at verse 8. And being found in the appearance of a man, he humbles himself even further and becomes obedient. There's a servant, obedient, to the point of death, even the horrible death of a and so once again, notice, Jesus is not self-promoting. Hey, wait a minute, I'm going to be God. I'm God. Let me do a website. I'm God. I'm going to do podcasts. Hey, talk to God. I'm God. I can do this. Hey, I've got followers. Hey, we're going to get ready. Hey, organize. Hey, fight. Hey, do, hey, do this. He's not self-promoting. In fact, notice what this passage is saying in verses 7 and 8. He is positively self-demoting. He chooses to have no reputation. He chooses to become a man. He chooses to die upon the cross. He chooses to keep lowering himself and lowering himself and lowering himself in order that he would serve his father and do his father's will and he would love us. But look at verse 9. Therefore God also has highly exalted him. He self-demoted God promoted. Therefore, God also highly exalted him and has given him the name which is above every name. He took his name down to nothing. He made himself a nobody. God promoted him to the greatest name possible. And that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and of those in heaven, all angels, archangels, and those upon the earth, all the great and mighty of the earth, all of us, and those under the earth, Satan and all of the demons, that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There's one phrase 
that every human being is going to speak one phrase. Jesus Christ is Lord. Vladimir Putin, the forever president of Russia, the, the, the only other person who's been as long as he has in power is Stalin, interestingly enough. Vladimir Putin and Joseph Stalin will one day say this phrase, Jesus Christ is Lord. My Lord. They'll be on their knees. Jesus Christ is Lord. Probably the most powerful person in this world right now because he has a lot of power and he's a dictator. He doesn't have a Congress or Senate. I think he's more powerful than the president in that sense. Is Xi Jinping of China. And one day Xi Jinping on his knees will say, Jesus Christ is Lord. He is Lord. I'm accountable to him. He's my Lord, and he has complete authority over me. Joe Biden will one day bow before Jesus Christ and say, Jesus Christ is Lord. You see, dear friends, this humble peasant from Nazareth who was born of peasant parents who couldn't even bring a lamb at his, at his dedication after eight days in his circumcision, had to bring a little dove, who was, whose crib was a hay rack, who was born in a barn, who quietly worked for 30 years in a backwater town in the building trades, who went about doing good, who tenderly restored people, who welcomed children and touched lepers and called the poor and ate with sinners and weeped at funerals and entered into our suffering and loved us and served us not by fighting and shouting. One day, every single person will bow before him and say, you are Lord. How do we apply this to ourselves? I'm going to give a minor application, then a major one. The minor application is this, Christians. I think we need to think long and hard about this stuff so that we don't lose our moral force. Dear Christians, we live in a very politicized world. We live in a loud world, we live in a power-grabbing world, we live in a protest world, we live in an in-your-face world. And the odds are so great, the, the, the issues are so great, and we have a, we have a Senate that is 50-50. And we have a, a House of Representatives that is like 208 to 200. And everything is in the balance. And we feel like that, 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 that we have to push, push, push. And we feel like we need to politically organize and protest and get angry and yell and be in the face. And I get all the complexities of living in a democracy. I get that. And you know I'm, I'm not one of these people that says that we should just sit back and do nothing. I'm not one of those people. But we need to be very careful and think very, very clearly here so that we don't lose our moral force. I believe that, that we live in an age of self-promotion, of self-promotion, of having your own uh, uh, Facebook page and, and having your own Instagram and, and promoting yourself and, and getting your message out there. And it seems like everybody has a podcast. Like everybody has something important to say. 
And dear friends, I want us to realize, I think we need to keep our heads straight about this. I think that we need to understand, dear friends, this. One act of love or compassion. One act of, and one example of humble servanthood has more power than a thousand podcasts. Has more power than a thousand screaming protesters. There is a reason why someone like a Mother Teresa captured so much attention in this world. There's a reason why somebody who, who dedicated their life to the poor and went into where the poor and the, and the needy were and dedicated their life, that, that's still captured in attention. There's a reason for that. Now, now, people who are Jesus types don't normally capture the media attention. The last shall be first. And yet the people who are around them are and Jesus, I mean, God sees this, the Father, and he exalts them. And dear friends, I think we need to think about this. Maybe we should be more going about and doing good than getting in people's faces and poking their chests and yelling political slogans at them. That's the minor application. We need to think about this and not lose our moral force and not lose being followers of Jesus. But secondly, the major application is this, and it's Jesus. We need to delight in him as the Father delights in him. We had the Lord's table, and Dave Rule led us in, in uh, the word precious, and, and uh, it's a, it is a precious word in Scripture, the word precious. And I'd like to add mine to that. My favorite verse, one of my favorite verses in Scripture has the word precious, and it's 1 Peter 1.7 that says this, to you who believe, he is precious. To you who believe, he is precious. Dear ones, every person who truly comes to Jesus comes to Jesus because of a need. You come to Jesus because you need him. That's why people come to Jesus. Proud people don't come to Jesus. Self-made people don't come to Jesus. The loud, the arrogant, the, the forceful, they don't come to Jesus. The rich, the intelligent, they don't see a need for Jesus. The cool, the hip, the swaggering, they don't see a need for Jesus. Now, the people who come to Jesus are the people who are broken. We're broken by sin. We're under the power and reign of sin, and we need somebody to deliver us. We're under the rulership of Satan. We're burdened with guilt. We're weak and we're frail and we're helpless and we're at the end of our strength and we come to him and he doesn't despise us. And these little bent reeds, he heals and restores back up. And when our strength is so weak, we have nothing to offer. He sees a little ember of faith, and he blows it back into life. This is a strangely different God than what we would expect. We would expect a God who is amazed by power, and amazed by prestige, and amazed by privilege, and amazed by accomplishment, and he's not. He's a God who, when you come all broken and frail and bent and your ember is almost out, accepts you 
and welcomes you and helps you. And you know what? It still goes on. Even after we come to him, we still need him. And we come broken. There should be a handout in your bulletin. And listen to how J.C. Ryle put this. He says, what are we to understand by the bruised reed, the smoking flax? The language of the prophet, no doubt, is figurative. What is it that these two expressions mean? The simplest explanation seems to be that the Holy Spirit is here describing believers whose grace at present is at present weak, whose repentance is feeble, and whose faith is small. Towards such people, the Lord Jesus Christ will be very tender and compassionate. Weak as the broken reed is, it shall not be broken. Small as the spark of fire may be within the smoking flax, it shall not be quenched. It is a standing truth in the kingdom of grace that weak grace, weak faith, and weak repentance are all precious in our Lord's sight. Mighty is he, he does not despise anyone. The doctrine here laid down is full of comfort and consolation. There are thousands in every church of Christ to whom it ought to speak peace and hope. There are some in every congregation who hear the gospel who are ready to despair of their own salvation because their strength seems so small. They're full of fears and despondency because their knowledge and faith and hope and love appear so dwarfish and diminutive. Let them drink comfort out of this text. Let them know that weak faith gives a man as it, that weak faith, now listen to this line, by the way. Let them know that weak faith gives a man as real and true a saving interest in Christ as strong faith. Though it may not give him the same joy. There is life in an infant as truly as there is in a grown-up man. There is fire in a spark as truly as there is in a burning flame. The least degree of grace is, as everlast, is an everlasting possession. It comes down from heaven. It is precious in our Lord's eyes. It shall never be overthrown. Dear ones, are you here today because you're weak? Are you here today because you feel that you're at the end? Are you here today because struggles have so overwhelmed you? Do you feel like you have the last embers left within you? Come to the Lord Jesus Christ. Come to the Lord Jesus Christ. Come to him with your need. Come to him, and you will find in him infinitely more than all that you need. You say, oh, he won't, he won't come to me. Yes, he will. Yes, he will. Look at how he's been revealed. What kind of Savior is it? What kind of wonderful Savior is it who doesn't consider equality with God something to grasp? Because he's concerned about us. He wants our salvation. He gives up everything for us. He goes, he sacrifices, he lives a life of nothing for us. What kind of God is a self-sacrificing God? Our God is. The great God is. The great Savior is. The Lord Jesus Christ, it says in the book of John, such an amazing passage, it says Jesus. It's the end of his life. It says Jesus. He's in the upper room. It says Jesus, knowing that he had come from the Father and knowing that all things were given to him, and that he was going to the Father. Now, for the average person, that would just explode their ego. Knowing that all things were put into his hand by his Father. And knowing that he had come from God. And that he was going to God. What did he do? Start a website? 
do a podcast, broadcast it on Instagram, all things are put in my hand. I'm great. Puff up in pride with all those stupid disciples around him who didn't know a thing. And we're about to flee from him. Jesus, knowing that all things had been placed in his hand by the Father and that he had come from God and was going to God, got up, took off his outer garment, wrapped a towel around his waist, grabbed a basin of water, got down on his knees, grabbed the smelly feet of the first disciple, placed it in that basin, washed his feet, dried it with the towel around his waist, and went to the next one, and went to the next one. Jesus, knowing that he had come from the Father, and knowing that he was going to the Father, and all things were placed in his hand, I'm going to wash their feet. This is somebody you can come to. This is somebody you can come to broken. You might say, no, you don't know. I've messed up. I've messed up too much. No way I can come to him. I'm a sinner. Dear friends, then you're qualified. Perfect. You're a sinner. He saves sinners. I didn't come to heal the righteous, he said. I came as a doctor to heal sinners. I'm a sinner. You qualify. Come to him. He heals sinners. I'm a failure. That's all you need then. I'm a failure. Perfect. You qualify. He takes failures in and he gives them hope. I'm so weak. That's not a problem. Bent reed, he will not break. I'm unholy. You don't know what I've done. What if he knows what I've done? Then you need to go to him because he is the one who is the unending source of forgiveness and compassion and mercy. I'm a nobody. Maybe to this world you're a nobody, but you're not to him. He is tender, he is lowly. He is compassionate, and all that you need, you will find in him. Dear ones, the father delights in his son. We need to delight in his son as well. And we need to come to his son just as we are, as we are, with the smallest little ember of faith that we have. Come to him, flee to him, find in him all that you need for life and salvation and health and power and help. I am weak, but he is strong. I am sinful, but he is righteous. I have nothing. He offers me everything. I should be damned, but he suffered for me. Dear ones, that's the gospel. That's the good news. Come to the Lord Jesus Christ with all that you have. Come to him. Never hesitate to come to him. And you'll find in him your all in all. Let's pray together. Dear Lord, we are such bent reeds and barely glowing embers. And this world has beaten us up, drained us of hope left us stained with guilt, left us ugly with our past, shamed of our past, fearful of even the sins that are raging in our own heart even now. 
But Lord Jesus, we thank you. We just thank you for who you are. That you are this dear, glorious, precious Savior. Father, thank you for sharing him with us. Thank you for sending him for us. Thank you for the wonderful salvation that we have. And his name is Jesus. Oh, Lord Jesus, we're nobodies. Look where we live, Lord. This isn't a place of power. This isn't a place of authority. They fly over us here. But Lord, you love the humble. You humbled yourself. They flew over Nazareth, for goodness sakes, too. You are God. You are saved. And I pray that every single person here, whether they're a Christian or not a Christian right now, that every single person will once again feel your call to them, your open arms, your infinite patience, your gracious love, your tenderness, your compassion, your understanding of who we are right now the failures of this week, the coldness of our hearts, the wanderings of our minds, the weakness of our faith. You love us. You just love us. And you delight in us. And you are love. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you that Little Crossroads Church is one of the many churches that has an intimate, real relationship with the great you. Thank you. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for loving us. And thank you for the hope that every day you'll be right here with us. Thank you. We praise you in your precious name.